Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. All right, this week, what a wild career this guy has had. It's Tony James. I think most people probably know a lot about Tony. Maybe you didn't realize that the same guy was doing all these different things. But Tony starts out in Generation X with Billy Idol. I think we all know Billy Idol is always best when he has a co-captain next to him. And that guy has been Steve Stevens for 40 years. But prior to that, it was Tony. And they put out, they did all those great hits that Generation X had. Well, he eventually leaves when Billy goes solo. You would think Tony would go with him, but he didn't. However, he did get a co-write on Dancing With Myself, which has provided a lot of nice mailbox money ever since. So, Bo, now Billy is solo, and Tony's trying to kind of conceptualize his next move, and eventually that next move becomes Zig Zig Sputnik. Talk about conceptual. So this band, which is almost as outrageous as it is infamous, um, they put out this song right here, Love Missile F111. But that's really all there is. I mean, there's one album, maybe a little bit more than that. It's a very strange chapter, but Tony tells the whole story in here about what it went into it, what he was trying to say or comment on, why they did it. It was outrageous. Well, they kind of crash and burn. I mean, pretty quickly, unfortunately. And after that, Tony decides, I'm going to be a sideman for Andrew Eldridge in uh, Sisters of Mercy. The Sisters of Mercy. You'll find out why I said that in this conversation. So he goes off and backs up Andrew for a while. Then that comes to an end. He's, he's only really on the one album. Works with him for a couple of years. And eventually, he and his old buddy, Mick Jones, from The Clash, and before that, London SS, formed this band called Carbon Silicon, which, I mean, it's a real group. They made out, they made music and everything, but it was almost more, I think, for a laugh for two buddies who just wanted to have fun and play together and do interesting things. They gave a lot of the music away for free. It's what a ride this has all been. But Tony is about as carefree and happy and satisfied as you can imagine a rock star to be. I love this conversation because he is hilarious. And he gives us stories about all of these different chapters in his career. Not necessarily in the in the order, but we get to all of them eventually. All right? Anyway, Tony was a super, super nice, funny guy. I love this chat. He called me from his home outside of Glastonbury. So, for starters, I... <laughs> this is... I don't normally start a conversation this way, but I think I'm going to. I... I've been reading, or I just finished reading the Exit Stage Left book by Nick Durden that you. Oh yes, read. that's right. It yeah. does. It does talk about me in that. Yes, it does. Yes. Nick was on yeah. here recently. We did it. We talked about it. It's such. It's one of my favorite recent music books. I just love it, and it was so good to see your name in there. And I was kind of, I was kind of shocked to hear that. You live a pretty idyllic life. What does Tony <laughs> James do every day? I'm curious. <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, what do we do every day? I mean, at the moment, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting in uh, in our house in Glastonbury. You know, oh, we live in nice. we live in London as well, but we've got a a great house here um, in Somerset. You know, it's a 16th century house, so um, there's always something to do. But uh, you know, I kind of keep doing music and live between here and London. You know, it's extraordinary. Life goes by, but, you know, at this age now, we need to 
have a nice life, have a good time, you know, and uh, not be fucked up. And, you know, so, you know, the today got up, walked the dogs, did some stuff, you know, did some business from home. And then, uh, you know, we have a bottle of wine, um, have lunch outside and, uh, you know, pass out in the garden and then uh, <laughs> <laughs> wake up. Do, do wordle. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. See, this is what I mean. Okay, Tony, I mean, I I'm gonna sound really bold here, but and even even I've had a bass guitar over there, and then often I do like a, a half an hour bass guitar practice to uh, uh-huh. I'm trying to get up to speed again, you know, because the the early generation X stuff is incredibly fast. Okay. I, so this this lends to my question, which is you're Okay, if you're practicing for 30 minutes, are you practicing because you're going to get you're getting ready for a show? Because well, um, like what is what are your plans musically well, or do you just live off dancing with myself money? Well. We can live very handsomely from the catalogs. Obviously, the the Generation X catalog, the Sputnik catalog, the Carbon Silicon catalog, and, uh, you know, different things Uh um, I've done in the past, you know. But, yeah, I've sort of been practicing bass recently. I mean, I hadn't touched a bass guitar since I walked off stage with Generation Sex in 2018. I mean, when we played a gig in New York, which was such brilliant fun. And I met up with Steve and Paul um, at the Pistol premiere uh, a few weeks ago. And we talked about whether we might do more Gen Sex gigs. And Billy's up for it and Steve is up for it and Paul's up for it. So it's, you know, that's kind of up in the air. So I thought I ought to just practice a bit you know in case we suddenly went what you're doing next week yeah so i can uh play the songs as fast what you can't believe is when you look back at these songs you wrote all this time ago how bloody fast they are laughing <laughs> myself at 192 bpm and i play a peculiar style because i play all upstrokes on bass uh-huh. i don't play up and down strokes so i have to play at 192 bpm <laughs> so but it's kind of nice you know i I walk around the garden with um, my iPod, iPod earphones uh-huh. and um, play through a set, you know. Of, That's uh, crazy. So, you know, I'm kind of practicing for that. So 
you know, maybe we'll, we'll I mean, the, the plan is to maybe do something next year. That's what okay. everybody said. We could do it in 2023. And, you know, it's not for any other reason really than just for the sheer fun of it. You know, when we played those shows in America a couple of years ago, it was such fun. And to play with Steve Jones and Paul Cook, who are both brilliant players, and to play the songs that they wrote and then them play the songs that Billy and I wrote was just brilliant fun. You know, so there's no other reason to do it. So it's kind of in play. Yeah. You know, we have the agent out there looking at shows. We'll, we'll see what happens. That's incredible. Good for you, Tone. I can't. That just. In 2018. Yeah. We're, we're just great fun. We're Good. really brilliant. And to play those old songs in a context of just doing it just for the hell of it. Yeah. You know, yeah. we don't need to. Uh, you know, make uh, we don't need to do it for the money. It's just sure. for the hell of it. See, that's beautiful. Good for you. I have a lot of questions about. Well, your whole career is just goes from like one fascinating lily pad jumping to another fascinating lily pad. I think it's yeah. Uh, I mean, it's it's interesting when I look back at the the different projects that I've done throughout my career because it's very hard to maintain a career in the music business if you don't have a major, major group that just goes on and on and on like the Stones, you know, but also to be able to do things where you can do something totally different, you know. So I went from Generation X and then I went to play with Johnny Thunders for a couple of years during the gestation period of Sputnik. Um, And then I played with the Sisters of Mercy for a couple of years, made an album with them. did a couple of other projects in between. Um, and then uh, obviously the Gen Sex stuff and other Sputnik sort of reunion things. So it's been quite a trip to do all these no, vastly different things, yeah, you know. Yeah. Did Carbon Silicon ever, you guys never played live, right? It was mostly yeah, yeah, just we, yeah, what we you did. did. We, okay. Yeah, yeah. We played a whole bunch of shows in England where uh, we played in tiny clubs around England. I mean, we were just being. I suppose it was a perverse thing that we wanted to write all new songs. You know, at at the time in 2002, the first song Mick and I wrote was called MP3. I believe in MP3. I believe in P2P. I just burned my own CD. The music was free in the 21st century. The tech And it was the idea that we'd had, let's write a song and give it away for free, you know, and which was quite a new concept in 2002. And so we consistently gave five albums away for free. 
you know, and what was so great was we could record it in the afternoon, mix it the next day, and then have it on the internet that evening. And people could listen and hear what we were doing. And then we could do remixes. And, yeah. you know, so it was a great, again, it was a great project for Mick and I, just about songwriting uh-huh. and having fun in the studio. So eventually we did go out and tour. Um, I mean, perversely, we said, okay, we're not going to play any of our old hits. You know, which is quite sort of suicide to go out and gig and not <laughs> should I stay or should I go or Generation right. X hit. Yeah. But in a way, we wanted to present it as a new group. And again, it was something we were able to do for yeah. fun. Yeah. You know, so we toured the UK. We played a few shows across Europe. We did an American tour, which was a whole bunch of fun. Oh, um, really? I didn't even know that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We went to America and, uh, you know, we played a bunch of shows there. And it was just, again, it was great, the thrill. And because uh, this one, I was playing guitar, not bass guitar. Mm-hmm. So that was a whole other thing of practicing guitar. So, uh, I mean, What's I keep using the... the word fun, but how great, isn't it, that we can say no we kidding. did it for fun? Oh, so kidding. No kidding. Such freedom. What's at the heart of you and Mick's friendship? Because you guys have been tied to one another, I think, since going back to, what, the London SS days? I mean, you well, guys that's right. Yeah. There- yeah, I mean, we we met right back in the pre-punk early days, 73, 74, and we met at a heavy metal kids gig uh, at the really? Fulham Greyhound, which was a bar you could go to and see bands for free. Mm. You know, and, well, there was, the, there was the, the Greyhound in the Fulham Palace Road, and we saw bands like Sharks and Thin Lizzy there for free and heavy metal kids, and then the other one was the Nashville in Kensington, where we saw our ACDC for free um, when they first came over to the UK. Wow. So we met at that show, and we we were both reading um, a book called The Tale of Willie's Rats um, at the time, which was a sort of a, a Mick Farron's fantasy rock and roll band. And um, we had such a liking for the same stuff you know we like Mott the Hoople and we like the New York Dolls and remember London SS was a very New York Dolls kind of band yeah um and so we just had a great humor together and uh and and the friendship has lasted all, all these years you know difficult bugger though he is um <laughs> to work with obviously but I yeah. know, so, I. Um, so do you smoke yeah. as much weed as he does I hear he just is going from like blunt to blunt all day. <laughs> yeah, that's something I've never really enjoyed. For me. Yeah, I read that so, in that book that you're not much of a drug taker. No, you know, I'm um, too fanatical and uh, too autistic to do drugs, you know. So um, yeah. that's never for me to be uh, a slave to anything like that. Good for you. I had a question too. Now that we're on the topic of Mick, we're kind of jumping all over the place. But sure. when Sigzig Sputnik came to an end, Chris Cavanaugh from the band goes off and joins Big Audio Dynamite too. Ooh, you go right. off and do Sisters of Mercy. Of Mercy. Why yeah. didn't you go join your buddy Mick? Did you have you guys always figured that at least at that time maybe that working together would ruin your friendship or something? Well, yeah, and also he had Big Audio Dynamite, which was an ongoing project, you know. Um, and you know when he did it with uh, Leo and Don Letts, you know, I, the band I version I really liked. But I mean, it just turned out as Sputnik kind of came to an end. Um, 
Andrew Eldridge called me up and said, look, I'm making an album in Denmark. Why don't you come and play on it? And because it, it, it was a nice circular um, moment because right at the beginning of Sputnik, um, I'd asked Andrew Eldridge to be the singer of Zig Zig Sputnik. You know, oh. I saw him playing in a tiny club to like three people and they were doing <laughs> covers of Velvet Underground songs and suicide uh -huh. songs. And I just thought he was great. You know, he was like yeah. a young Jim Morrison. And I, I really wanted him to become the singer of this group that I was putting together. Uh, but, you know, he had his own project ongoing. But we became friends then. And throughout the career of um, Sisters, all the way through the career of Sputnik, he'd always sent me every record that he ever made. And he sent me obscure postcards from all sorts of places all over the world. You know, and he's a really smart, intelligent guy. Yeah. So we had a great understanding together. So in a way, he, he when Sputnik broke up, he was able to kind of return the favor. That's amazing. So I have two questions about that. One, I mean, we always hear that he's an he's a really difficult person, that he's <laughs> you know really belligerent and prickly and hard to get to know. But you guys became buddies. And then secondly, I'm curious what it was like to go from fronting this infamous and notorious Zig Zig band to yes. being, uh, you know, a, a hired, not a hired hand. You're probably. Well, I understand. That, yeah, but, totally. Totally. You know, I mean, it, what, what, no, tell I me mean, about those two things. Yeah. I mean, the, firstly, of course, anyone who's great is difficult because anyone who has a vision and a total focus on what they're going to do is not going to be straight from that. Uh, vision you know so greatness is defined by being difficult and focused True. and Good you know that is very totally, well said actually uh into what you're doing so i kind of knew that about him. and you know so i flew over to denmark to start working on the, this record with him you know and uh it was a, a residential studio and I was only meant to be going for like a month and a half to make a record. And the two of us shared an apartment together, you know, and so it all started off very civilised, although his time frame started to slip fairly quickly in that he was working from 12 o'clock at night and I was working in the daytime. And yes. We used to communicate, we'd leave each other pieces of paper usually with our scores of the computer games that we were scoring to try and outdo each other and <laughs> and then sort of message like this is what we should do tomorrow you know of course i love his difficultiness i love the fact that he's a really intelligent guy you know yeah. here it, this explains what it's like you know that we would have ongoing scrabble games in the apartment we were sharing really? in, in between uh you know, in going to the studio. And, of course, he would play upside down. He wouldn't turn the board around to have his go, <laughs> you know, which shows what? you the perverseness. Oh, <laughs> I'm just imagining being Andrew Eldridge's roommate for six months or however long it was that yes. you took to make that album. What yes. a bizarre scenario. Yeah, we'd that sit by crazy. the swimming pool playing Scrabble. Actually, it was the first time, one of, well, it was, it was the only time I ever played the seven-letter word Quetzal um, across the <laughs> triple, which is a 300-and-something scorer. So um, I never played that since, but it was one of those magical moments. Oh, why that's great. He remembers this. Oh, that's great. <laughs> wow. Well, well, I still play Scrabble a lot. Um, I can tell. I can tell you're passionate you know. about it. Um, yes. Okay, one question about that album, Vision Thing. Um, it's, I really love the song, More. 
probably not the best sisters fan because I love Floodland most. And um, because I love Jim Steinman, you know, mm-hmm. and more mm-hmm. is like an, you know, is another Steinman song. Do you Definitely. remember anything about how that came to be? Did, did well, there... because Steinman had worked on um, this corrosion, you know, and, and yeah, big, but I wondered if the like hit. they did Steinman say, I got one more for you. Was it left? Well, over no, I mean, we'd, we'd, or... we'd recorded more in uh, Denmark. Okay. Um, and I might add before when I, I went there, for six weeks, um, I ended up staying a whole year in Whoa! Denmark. Oh, I didn't you know, know it was that long. Okay. Yes, Andrew is quite fanatical. I have this great vision of um, he did 200-odd vocal takes for, for one track, and he had all these sheets of paper sellotaped wow. all around the studio, and he would take one word from take 200, you know, and add it to take 20 i mean it took like a it took like a fucking week just to listen back to the vocal (laughs) tape let alone mix the thing so kind of illustrates why it yes a long time i of course meanwhile was having the time of my life because i had a warner brothers car we had a chef we had an apartment retainer this is living the high life yeah so i went all over denmark and you know saw all things and drove everywhere and you know occasionally popped by the studio i probably played for about half an hour on the record um You know, I have, to, I have to admire Andrew. He has yeah. a total vision and he absolutely will not be strayed. Yeah, I mean, here's the tell. thing that illustrates that perfectly. We later toured as mm-hmm. uh, the Sisters of Mercy and um, we were in the bus approaching a big festival. And uh, just as we were arriving at the festival, there was a huge festival poster. And on the poster, it said, headlining the festival, Sisters of Mercy. And Andrew went, stop the bus. And he went, it's not Sisters of Mercy. It's the Sisters of Mercy. Oh, turn, no. <laughs> turn the bus around. We're not playing. <laughs> really? So you skipped it because the dog was missing? <laughs> yeah. You know, so we're talking about, you know, and then, and then a whole thing ensued, you know, of uh, people, oh, you can't do this. And, you yeah. know, I can't remember actually whether we played it or not in the end, but wow. that kind of illustrates. Yeah. A, fanaticism to detail which i've always had with my own groups Mm -hmm. i think the problem was for me as sisters can went on i was used to being the guy in charge or the guy calling shots and having the vision of how it would go so suddenly obviously i was playing with another general and i was you know, just one of the foot soldiers suddenly. Yep. So we'd yep. be shooting the video and the video director go, Andrew, I've got a few ideas, you know, and, and I go, I've got some ideas and they would be wandering off, you know. So because it was very difficult for me to keep my sure. mouth shut and not to want to kind of take over, um, you know, which is a gift and a curse, you know. So Yeah, no kidding. Uh, How come he, I mean, that's, I think, their last album. What, did he not just... Did he lose the itch to make more more music after that? What happened? You know, he's such an enigmatic guy. I mean, I think yeah, he's he lived in a castle in Spain or something. That's what I've heard. Yeah. Uh, we we communicate rarely. Um, right. You know, I, he generally doesn't reply to emails. Although, I, last time I spoke to him was on my 60, 60th birthday, and I, and I emailed him and said, I'm having a birthday party at the Groucho Club. I'd love you to come, mm. you know. And um, fuck me. 
half an hour into the evening, in he walks. Really? <laughs> so he turned up <sighs> in, in London, you know, to my birthday. Yeah, and uh, so, you know, that's kind of, he has that kind yeah. of uh, doing the right thing. When okay, it's, good. It's the right now, speaking of big personalities, let's talk about Billy Idol. <clears throat> yeah. Are you two still in touch at all? You and yeah, Billy? we we do. Okay. We speak and we text each other all the time. Okay. And, uh, you know, we the Generation Sex thing was uh, something that sort of came about. Uh, I'd planned to, uh, we, we went to Los Angeles and my wife wanted to go away for a, a month and we'd rented this house on Malibu Beach. Mm. Um, and uh, we went there and we said to Billy's people, oh, we're going to, you know, we're going to be there. They said, oh, we went and we had lunch when we got there, like you do now. I mean, <laughs> we had lunch. <laughs> and, um, uh, and then a few days later, Billy called me up and said, oh, I'm going to see you too tonight. You know, um, why don't you come with me? And uh, so Penelope and I drove from Malibu to Billy's house in the hills, which took like an hour and three quarters. I thought Malibu, I thought it was all one place. But no, everything takes like two hours to it get does. there. In LA, so we drove yes. all the way to Billy's house in the hills. And then it took us two hours to get to the YouTube show. <laughs> you know. But uh, yeah. it, it was all cool. We arrive together at the YouTube show and we're we're shown backstage through an ever took through ever increasingly smaller and smaller and more vip rooms mm -hmm. until finally we literally funnel into this tiny room and i'm sort of jarred into this room and i'm suddenly standing next to brad pitt and oh. you know all these other movie stars what? and then the first person i see is steve jones <laughs> and um steve goes oh you know in his usual, uh -huh. doesn't say much, fairly, um, as if you've listened to his radio show, uh -huh. he's fairly tight with words. Yes. And yes. Uh, he went, so are you going to do some gigs? And I, and I said, yeah, we might actually, you know, we're thinking about doing something because Billy wants to go out and play. And he went, i tell you what, use me. <laughs> right. Really? And went, yeah. And I went, wow. That that'd be interesting. And I turn around to say to Billy, you know, who's talking to someone someone else but uh -huh. us. And uh, and I look back and Steve had vanished. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, obviously if I in, maybe you thought I was gonna go, oh fuck off, you know. Yeah, so yeah. We get in touch a few days later and I, and, and Billy goes, Yeah, it'd be great. Why don't we do that? And Steve says, Oh, come on the radio show. Um, and you know, do a, an, an interview. And uh -huh. So Billy and I turn up at the radio show uh, and we're just talking and Bill and Steve says, so we're going to form this group together. And, you know, it's <laughs> the first we talked about it. Wow. Right? So he admits, he announces yes. it live on the radio and he goes, you know, and we'll get Cookie on drums and it'll be great. And we'll do Pistols tracks and your tracks and it'll be great. And that was the start of that whole thing. No way. It seems wow. like I'm just telling you stories to your questions but you know maybe that's no this is gold this is exactly what i want that is so fun wow okay so here's one of my the questions i've always had when generation x comes to an end yes why didn't you just go join up with billy's solo band why why couldn't it have been you him and steve stevens did you have this well, huge concept for sig and want to go that way sure what well, no it didn't work out that way i mean in fact you know we we 
Generation X was an incred- incredibly exciting band to play with. You know, Mark Laff was Keith Moon, Derwood was, was Jeff Beck, you know, Billy was Elvis, and I was Steve Jobs, you know. Mm-hmm. So we had this great explosive relationship, and it was like the Who live at Leeds playing live, mm-hmm. you know, and it was kind of ad-libbed, and Derwood was a fearsome guitarist, brilliant to play with. Um, but when he turned around after the Japanese tour and said he didn't want to be in the band anymore, he wanted to do something of his own. And, you know, we were quite devastated because we didn't want to break up the group. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we spent like a year trying to uh, find someone else to replace Durwood. I mean, eventually we we settled on Steve New um, to play with us, um, who was this mercurial player who'd played with rich kids. And, um, and I have all these tapes of the rehearsals and Plus, it's a complete fucking nightmare rehearsing because, oh, meanwhile, we've got Terry Chimes to play drums with us. We thought we'll get the drummer from The Clash and we'll get Steve New because he's really brilliant. And uh, virtually every tape recording of rehearsals goes, um, we go, let's play Dancing With Myself then. And Steve New would go, how's it go? And we go, Steve, we practised it yesterday, did we? Oh, okay. Um, And it turns out, at that time, there were an awful lot of heroin addicts in the group, and it was all kind of slightly messy, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the time we came round to recording the record, uh, we used Steve New as the lead guitarist on Dancing Myself. Uh, but also, of course, perfect circle again, we used Steve Jones on the Give It the Bollocks in the Chords type playing. Mm-hmm. And... Um, at that time, we were think we wanted to do it with Steve and Paul. Then me and Billy, and we did rehearse in Air Studios after we'd recorded "Dancing Myself." We set up two drum kits, and we had we were going to have Paul Cook and Terry Chime and Steve Jones on guitar and Billy on guitar and me on bass. But again, there were too many bottles of methadone on the top of the desk to make this a, a realistic proposition. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and there was all sorts of contractual problems. Right. So we played some gigs. The Gen X gig that we banned, that we went out live, it was okay, but it, it just wasn't mercurial. It wasn't – it didn't have the true madness that makes greatness. Mm-hmm. Um, and then meanwhile, I'd got – it was my idea to get Villa Coin to – manage the group because I went we didn't have a manager and we were getting rid of the old manager and it was a contractual lawyer nightmare and I said well why don't we get the bloke who does kiss because he'll kind of get what we're doing and so Bill Coin had flown over to England and I really liked him and he had great ideas and it was his idea to get Keith Forty, you know who was the drummer on all the Moroda records that's right so we recorded the record and then we put dancing myself out and we put it out like two or three times and we did a bunch of little gigs but it just we couldn't get any airplay it just wasn't happening in any way you know and bill a coin had said come to america you know why don't you come to america and i suppose at the time i think i was probably too much of an English boy to want to move to New York in what was quite a volatile situation with Billy and Billa Coin, you know. So Billy went to America and I kind of set about, what the fuck am I going to do now? Yeah, 
Yeah. You know, because you, you you leave, I left university, you know, I'd done London SS with Mick and Brian James and that group never really worked out in terms of it couldn't, we never found the right singer because although Mick was singing, um, we wanted to get a singer for that group, but that group sort of exploded into the three groups, the Dan, Generation X and um, Clash, you know, and we we auditioned virtually every musician sure. in London. And the only other band in town at that time was, of course, the Sex Pistols, you know, who they were within walking distance of our rehearsal studio. They had their thing and we had ours and we met Um because it was a funny moment when they invited us to their studio in Denmark Street and me and Mick and Brian turned up and we looked like the New York Dolls and they looked like short-haired guys, you know, and we were like, fuck. You know, we just spent 10 years growing our hair. You know, we're going to have to cut it all off, you know. It was a big shock. Yes. You know, understandably, you know, Bernie and Malcolm were really smart. And then we yeah. asked to, to be brand new. You sure. had to not look like the groups before. Yeah. So um, uh, I'm losing track of this now. Oh, no, oh, this oh, is great. So, this is great. So here's, about, a, here's a question yeah. I have for you about this. Because my understanding is that Generation X never quite got the same uh, respect as some of those other bands, I think some people, maybe because Billy was so talented and blonde and good looking and stuff that he was a poser or that you guys weren't, you know, legitimately yeah. punks or something. What did well, it, that, does it have something was, to do with this? That was always a problem. In, in yeah. Why? Punk was, punk was perceived, perceived as a very working class from oh. the gutter kind of group. Now, you know, ironically, I'd grown up in the same neighbourhood, literally 10 streets away from Steve Jones and uh, Paul Cook in Shepherd's Bush, where I was born, and they grew up. And we'd all lived in these kind of tenement apartments with no bathroom, you know, where the bathroom was at the bottom of the garden, you know. It's kind of, kind of rudimentary the way houses were then. Um, but it was, But I'd then moved to... Twickenham with my parents uh, and and I had gone to grammar school and then to university and Billy was at university uh, reading philosophy and I was doing maths and computers mm -hmm. and so we were perceived as maybe too middle class and I'd come from the same background as the Pistols, not taken seriously by a very harsh ex. Looked great, you know. It, it, it as I said, looked like Jeff Beck, Billy's like Elvis, and you know, it had this brilliant, perfect look. We were all the same height, you know. It was like it was almost so magical in the way it, it looked. So it looked like a teen idol group, yet we played this really raw, aggressive, exciting music. Um, but we were never taken seriously by the English music press, and that was difficult for us. Mm. You know, obviously, with hindsight, you can go, yeah, but this group could have gone all the way because it yeah. had everything. Yeah. Uh, but when you're young and, you know, you just kind of go, oh, why does, you know, why does everyone hate us? Um, yeah. no. So that did uh, hold the group back, you know. It's weird. I wonder, too, if it was that you guys had, too good of a knack at writing what were essentially 
pop songs. I well, mean, yeah, I'm, stuff I'm, like I'm Your Generation life. and Kiss Me Deadly. These are great songs for the radio. That's right. Punk didn't That's always right. aspire to that. The Greyhound's rocking out tonight to maximum rockabilly. When two punks choose to risk the subway for a tube to Piccadilly. Whose efforts stir fast gangs for glory. Another dumb casualty. Having fun. It's out of six. Hit a flick, knife flicks. Oh, kiss me. Deadly. Tonight Another battle was won and lost down the bishops and last night The spotlights picked the kids in triumph with a thousand scars in his You know? That's right. And, and and you see, if Billy Joe Armstrong says, you know, that Kiss Me Deadly was the reason he got into music. And right in fact, on. when I was when I was in Los Angeles uh, a couple of years ago, he was doing a gig in a small club mm. and I went to the show and it was really sweet because he came on for the encore and he went, I want to play this song. And I believe the guy who wrote it is in the audience. I just want to <sighs> say this is why I started. And he played Kiss Me Deadly. <sighs> Wow. You know, I went backstage afterwards and you know he was so delightful and that is um, lovely. Yeah, so it was you know it it did have these great pop songs but you know what the Clash wrote pop songs as well. They did. That's why I've and, never understood. And Joe was just as middle class and educated as me and Billy but he was somehow perceived as a sort of Bob Dylan hobo. Um you know Mick came yeah. from the same background as us but Mick of course wrote fantastic tunes and the Pistols had fantastic tunes because they of Claire and they Steve. Yep. You know they were a pop group as well. They weren't the kind of ramalama punk of the Damned and uh, so many of the other groups. Yeah. So we were quite an explosive like the Who, we had those pop tunes, but mm. this explosive uh, stage show. I agree. Okay, so speaking, one last question that's kind of a tangent. You wrote Russian Roulette that the Lords of the New Church yes. uh, put out.
they, I love them too. I've had Brian James on here from that band. Um, how did that? You all seem to have come from sort of the same melting pot, so I'm well, not too right. surprised. But how did this happen? Yes. Well, I, I obviously I was friends with Brian, right? And he was a great guitarist. And mm-hmm. you know, there, there's a great there's an album's worth of material by London SS, which I have Mick and I have the only recordings of, really? um, which which ironically we recorded live in this in a rehearsal studio in front of Malcolm McLaren and Bernie Rhodes. What? No. And you can hear us talking in between oh, the track. Wow. You know. Yeah. And uh, there's a very funny bit. It goes, I'm recording this, and everything you're saying about Chrissy Hind is going on tape, I warn you. <laughs> right? So it has great <laughs> moments in sort of punk rock history on that tape. Although, Mick, uh-huh. I have always said, you know, we're never going to release tape. The myth is greater than the reality. Mm-hmm. But anyway, look, it, I was stayed. I'd stayed friends with Brian, and um, when um, Billy went to America, I was kind of in two minds of what to do. I'd become friends with Steve, even though Steve was really far out and taking drugs and fucked up. He and I had a, a kind of a quite a magical relationship somehow, and um, he, he'd come round to the house one day. And he said, look, what, I'm going to do this new group with Brian and, you know, why don't you and Terry come and rehearse with us and let's see how it goes, you know. So we went to a rehearsal, me and Terry chimes, and with Brian and Stiv. And, again, I recorded that first rehearsal. And so I've got great tapes of us doing wow. Sonic Reducer and Russian Roulette and Black Girl, White Girl, the songs that I – because I went, oh, look, I've got this song called Russian Roulette. Why don't we try it? And we just tried it in the rehearsal place. So it – it was great, but I felt I was sort of doing something I'd already done. I can see that. Okay. You know, so it was a kind of a leather jacket, black spiky hair kind of group, mm-hmm. and I wanted to do something completely new. Well, um, you did. So I, so I said, you know, I, I can't, I, you know, I don't want to do this. Yeah. And But I stayed friends with Steve throughout his, okay. his career, and he recorded another one of mine called Magic, which he did mm. on a solo record later. Yes. did a great version of Russian Roulette and it's become a real classic of Lords of the New Church because everyone thinks Brian wrote it because it's credited James on the record. Oh, sure. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So that's it you. was actually all written by me, words and tune. Wow. And I actually wrote it on a bass guitar sitting in no my flat where I, I shared with Magenta. Oh, um, and um, I've got the original demo of me singing the, the track. Crazy. You know? I love so, that. Um, I love that band. I love everything they did. Yeah, um, and they were great, you know. And, they were. Uh, 
But I had a sort of a a, a drive to want to do something different. Okay. You know? So that took a long time to gestate. Yes. You know, Gen X breaking up in 81. You know, it I spent like a year or sitting in I had this vision. If I go and sit in a cafe, it sounds crazy. <laughs> you know, the sort of mad stuff you do when you're young. But I thought if I sit in a cafe like in the six, 1960s, like the two eyes or something, um, and I believe in it, this I will be able to create this idea. And so I used to go to a cafe in a place called Shepherd's Market, which is in was in the middle of Mayfair. Um, and I could uh, get the bus from I was living with Magenta Divine, who was my girlfriend at the time, and I'd get the bus every day. Okay. Um, sit in this cafe, uh, nursing two coffees for the whole afternoon, um, reading Colin Wilson books and scribbling in a notebook of kind of assembling this vision of what could I do next that would be different to everything else, you know. And and I, it gradually became clear I wanted it. I'd, I'd really become obsessed with suicide, which Billy had got me into and Mick Jones had got me into because The Clash had brought suicide over to tour with The Clash. So we'd listen to that first suicide record over and over and over again. And Billy was very influenced by it as well at the beginning. Um, and so I, I wanted to kind of take the futuristic drive of suicide. I still love T-Rex and I wanted that excitement and popness of T-Rex. We were listening to loads of dub reggae. And I, so I wanted it to be have the elements of dub reggae as well. And then I w- always wanted it to have two drummers because I was such a huge fan of the Pink Fairies when I started. Mm-hmm. And they had these two drummers at the beginning. And it had really been one of the most biggest groups that I went to see when I was young. Yeah. Um, so I, And I wanted it to be futuristic, you know, because I, I was obsessed with the movie Blade Runner, um, the movie Escape from New York and Clockwork Orange. So there are all these elements that I kind of had a vision. Mm. Um, but because to be able to go and make it happen, mm-hmm. it's incredibly difficult because if you've been in one successful group and you've played with all these brilliant players, you know, from London SS through to Gen X, you know, to Steve and Brian, how do you go and find people that are going to be as good? Mm-hmm. Well, again, I had this sort of vision that if I, went and hung out in the right places, I'm just going to see someone walking down the street who looks like, I mean, it sounds ridiculous when you think back at it, but I'd, I'd actually met Neil through, I can't remember, maybe it was an advert in Melody Maker. He turned up this kind of blonde-haired guy who played really good, but he liked Johnny Thunders and he played a bit like Thunders. So it was the two of us, me and Neil, would we'd just go and sit in, coffee bars in like Richmond where the Rolling Stones started or in Kensington Market in all these different places where kind of there was some creative scene happening thinking we're just going to bump into people you know they look right uh, and they're going to kind of look extraordinary and uh, often Magenta would go with us you know and we yeah. found Martin in Kensington Market you know we went in and there was this guy behind the counter of this shop where he made all his own clothes and he had this kind of freaky hair and everything. And 
you know, Magenta went, he's our guy. And I went, oh, are you sure? You know, I'm not sure. And, you know, and she went, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I really think he's going to be great, you know. And, and I'd always go back to Mick Jones, who was my kind of conciliary, and say, Mick, what do you think of this guy? And he went, yeah, no, he's got it. You know, Mick always had a great feeling for people, you know, yeah. whereas I would have huge doubts. And like, oh, no, it's not working out, you know. Yeah, so it, yeah. We kind of found these people and then Kensington Market became our base and we found the other people in the group. You know, we found Ray Mayhew just came in the shop, just turned up. You know. And Chris Cavanna, he was walking down the mews where we lived. You know, we saw this kid and we went, wow, look at him, he looks good. And we went, oh, can you play drums? He went, no. We went, doesn't matter, we'll teach you. <laughs> Yeah, you know, wow. so it was a long project because it took from eighty one to eighty five before yeah. we could play gigs. That's crazy. You know, all these people hadn't played before. So but, you know, I, if we put them in a a soup of creativity, yeah, so we'd sit there in the Muse House. We had a rehearsal room, and and ironically, the Muse House where we were sitting with well, the previous owner of the Muse House was Sid Vicious. No so Magenta had bought it off Malcolm McLaren oh, and Sid Vicious in all those pictures of Sid and Nancy. Uh-huh. It's in this very muse house where no Sputnik way. rehearsed no and, and we all lived. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, this, I thought if, look, if we just, if we watch futuristic movies all day on <laughs> bootleg videos and we play only rock and roll songs, whether it's Elvis or Eddie Cochran uh-huh. or Gene Vincent, um, we'll kind of come up with it. Yeah, you know, Martin Deverell was very much the look of the group. He had the freaky hair. You know, he was uh-huh. a friend of George's, and so he brought that whole kind of visual element to it. So it was kind of – it's those magical things, isn't it, yeah. where groups are meant to be. The universe somehow aligns, and it 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 all works, it, it, you know. I'm, and we I'm all said – away, yes. We all said we were the bastard sons of Ziggy Stardust. Yeah. Now, yeah. Then there was a magical moment where we rehearsed. It was like a muse, which is these little cobbled streets in England. Uh-huh. And there was a pub at the end of the street. And um, we went to go to the pub. Fuck me, David Bowie was um, record shooting a video in the pub at the end of our street. Really? Yeah. And so these three people with coloured hair and uh-huh. looking like the sons, bastard sons of Ziggy from the future was standing on the other side of the street watching Bowie and there's a moment where he kind of looked over at us and it was like, uh-huh. <laughs> no way. I bet that was the Jazzin' for Blue Jean video. It was. I think you're right. Yeah. Because I can visualize, you talking about the cobblestone in the pub, that's what it makes me think of is that pub yeah. that he performs in in there. Wow. That's right. Oh, wow. And, of course, it has one of those great circular moments that have yeah. seemed to have happened to me all my career. In that Bowie, because in Tim Machine recorded a version of Love Missile F-111 yes. on his record, which is, was great praise from the master, you know, when wow. these kind of futuristic uh, science fiction gang were looking at him. Yeah. What what was, to me, I've always thought of Sputnik as being very high concept. I mean, you talked about a little bit, you know, if we watch futuristic movies and we listen to this kind of music, eventually the style and the form that we want to take will present itself were you commenting yeah. at all on i don't know consumerism or gluttony or fashion or 
or was it just like, this is my impression of the future? This is well, what I think I, it's going to sound like. I mean, at the time we, we'd formed the group, I was obsessed with, I'd had one of those first video machines mm. and I was obsessed with taping anything futuristic off the television. Mm. So I would, te- I would record movie trailers or anything from the news or bits about the future or footage of stuff. And we had pirate videos of Clockwork Orange and Escape from New York and, you know, various snuff movies and things. So I had this vast video array of things. And they were beginning to inform what the group would be about. And I always said, you know, that Sputnik was the sound of 200 television sets playing simultaneous. Oh, so it was snippets yeah. of lyric from, you know, if you dived into a bit like when Bowie's watching it in Man Who Fell to Earth, you know, all those screens all playing yes. at the same time. So yes. the lyrics were like the way Bowie used cut up lyrics. We would have snippets of what would seemingly be un- unrelated um, lines, but it was like an action painting of of vi- visual analogies uh the lyrics yeah and concepts so was it high, i mean it was high concept in that i was so fanatical about every detail and yeah. you know it was it all had to just be so perfect mm-hmm. for me but it was it grew organically you know i didn't come in and go listen guys this is what it's got to be you know mm-hmm. i just I just went, we need to, rehe- you know, when the two drummers are learning to play, you know, we we need to just play Eddie Cochran and Elvis tracks mm-hmm. and New York Dolls tracks, you know. And it, it was it was great. And, you know, Mick Jones was very helpful and all of the Clash were very helpful in terms of supporting our project. It's something that people had never really understood, the, the link between Sputnik and the Clash in that, I said um, to Mick, you know, that I said, well, you know, I've got these two kids, they're going to play drums. He went, oh, yeah, what are they like? And I went, well, they can't really play yet. And he went, well, they've got drum kits. And I went, well, not really. They haven't actually got drum kits, you know. Um, and he went, I tell you what, I'll, I'll ask Topper. So Topper and Terry Chimes lent us two drum kits so again it's steeped in punk rock history because those two guys learned on the kits that topper and terry chimes had played on you know and then and then um a a man called fakner o'kelly who was the manager of the boomtown rats who we were friends with at the time and and it was him that came up with the name zig zig sputnik he came around and he gave me a drum machine and it turned out to be an 808 drum machine, you know, one of these early drum machines. Mm-hmm. And um, Mick said, oh, I've got this synth called a Pro One, which made, because I said, oh, you know, it'd be great if, because originally we were just using bass guitar and the yeah. original downs were all done with bass guitar, but it wasn't futuristic. It didn't sound like suicide. I wanted electronic bass. And Mick went, oh, I've got this Pro One um, synthesizer. And... Um, you know, you could try that. So we had the drum machine and the Pro One synthesizer in the living room and the band rehearsing in the bedroom. Um, and I went to, but we didn't have any songs. Mm-hmm. And it was, and I was saying to Martin and Neil, look, you know, this is not going to work. You know, we, we've got song titles and we've got bits of lyric and we've got ideas, but we, we've got no songs, mm-hmm. you know. 
And I was going to America and the Clash were touring with um, The Who mm-hmm. and supporting The Who. And so I flew out to see Mick and I went, look, I'm going to go to America for a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Sort of in McLaren style, I went, you better bloody come up with some songs by the time <laughs> I get back. <laughs> you know, or this is not going anywhere. Right, right. So I went to America and they were sort of, they were staying at the flat. And Neil had this idea and he sort of was looking at the, drum machine and a synthesizer and he, he there was he plugged a lead from the synthesizer into the drum machine and fuck me the drum machine drove the synthesizer and they had it set just on this speed and so when he plugged it in and he pressed play it went do 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 and you could <laughs> press the key like really simply and go do 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 and then yeah. you could change the thing so so when i came back we'd had this song love missile but they'd got a backing track and a tune for love missile you know and then they recorded two others as well teenage thunder and she's my man and she's my man was just teenage fun backwards same beat because they didn't know how to change the speed on the drums i've always wondered (laughs) and then we had a a space echo which we'd had for a long time which i'd used when i worked with steve and then so we recorded these simple demos with the the equipment the simplest equipment that we were given and then we were able to by chance we were able to make it in dub by using the third channel. So we had drum machine, synth bass, guitar, and the vocals. And to get the dub effects, you had to lose either guitar or the vocals, and it had this way of dropping them out. So it was by sheer chance. If you wanted the guitar and the vocal to come through, you, the guitar would have to go, and then the vocal would come in. So it was limited. By, so again, it was somehow magical that wow. the sound just... Yes peered out of nowhere <laughs> that, i can't believe everything you're Sounds saying great. Because i think of it myself actually <laughs> yes yes yeah i love so, that you just sat back and said i'm going to open myself up to inspiration yeah. or the universe or whatever i believe that's it's right. going to come and it did you know that's right that's crazy. Yeah. so we had these demos of the tracks and we used to play them in the shop in kensington market where we'd hang out all over the weekend mm-hmm. you know we play these mad tracks and uh you know, we started to print our own T-shirts. So we had T-shirts before we had, you know. Of course you did. Before yeah, we course. did gig, we had all uh-huh. these T-shirts. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was brilliant because one day Steve Stevens came in and he bought a load of our T-shirts. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, good yeah, for him. 
And I wasn't there, and so he didn't know he was buying T-shirts I designed. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, he's been on here a couple of times. I love Steve. And you know, it was a great, great connection. Yeah. But the thing that really revolutionised Sputnik was we had these three demos of tracks, and um, I had all this video footage. And one day, I sort of woke up at like sort of nine o'clock in the morning, and I thought, I wonder if I could like make a video you know, a, a thing. And I had two video machines and I was able to, it was very simplistic technology. I was able to link the two video machines together and you could, I had this brand new one and used to rent video machines in those days. You didn't buy them. I remember. You rented them from a rental yep. So I had this new one. You could lay a soundtrack down, a stereo soundtrack down, but then you could drop in the, the footage from the second video machine, you oh, could drop no it in the footage. But it also, when I was doing it, it had a little switch on it. And when I switched the switch, it merged the sound of the video footage that we were dropping into the track onto the recording. So when there were explosions going off and Terminator and Scarface, you could get the, <laughs> the explosions really? and the talking. And that's how we got. We started to use the idea of snippets of movies, yeah, on the track just by sheer chance that one day. Because I went, oh, I wonder what this little button does, <laughs> and it just <laughs> dropped in the vocal, you know, wow, and the and sound of the movies. So Didn't I was you get able nailed to for that though. Eventually, like sampling, of course. But yeah, I mean that's one of the you know if we spool forward a couple of years, we're in the uh-huh. studio recording with Maroda, and we'd flown out to. Munich to meet Moroda and we showed him our demo that I'd made that little day you know where I made it in one day of all this video footage over our track it's all at the same speed you know and Moroda loved it and he loved all the visual stuff and he loved the idea of the movie samples um being on the record mm-hmm. you know yeah. so we recorded Love Missile F-111, which, again, is one of those, it's almost sort of an in-joke. Love Missile F-111 as a lyric doesn't appear on the record at all. No, it was, no. So the title doesn't appear on the record. Right, um, right. But um, So we recorded it, and I brought all my pirate tapes of Clockwork Orange and Scarface and, uh-huh. you know, Rambo and Terminator, and uh-huh. we just sampled. I had the video machine in the studio, and we flew the samples of the vocals straight onto the record, you know. And because it sounded fantastic, because when you hear Malcolm McDowell going ultraviolence, or you hear Al Pacino going, first you get the money, then you get the power in that voice, what you do is you buy into everything that movie represented yes. onto your record. Perfect. What, yes. What was ridiculous was it had never occurred to anyone that it was not legal to sample someone else's work. Right. You know, it just not to Moroda, Oscar-winning filmmaker. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So the record's like hurtling towards number one in the UK. And I get a call from the head of business affairs, mm. you know, and he had the record and all the posters, and the poster was a spoof of Clockwork Orange, and he was playing the record, and he went, you know, record, we're gonna have number one with this. He's and it's great. He went, I just wanted to check we've got clearance for all the samples. And I went, what do you mean clearance? What's clearance? And he went, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> and then all hell broke loose. Oh, man. What <laughs> a shame. Kubrick, apparently, 
they, they said that Stanley Kubrick was walking through his local village and he heard Love Missile F-111 playing in his local shop uh-huh. And he heard bits of Clover Corringe on the record, you know, <laughs> and he immediately was on the phone to Warner Brothers. Yeah, what is know? this? So, Sue these guys. Wow. We ended up being, you know, having to change it for America or different territories. And then sure. we ended up having to pay for the release of the samples, you know, which all went on our unrecoup position. Of you course. Know? But hey, it was fucking great. It was fun while it lasted. <laughs> so, so let yeah. me ask you this. When I, um, I, we have Patreon supporters and I tell them who I'm, can interview and if they want to submit wishes they can some of the things that came up were specifically around and maybe this is true maybe it's not i don't know it seemed as if the marketing engine to promote zig zig sputnik eventually overwhelmed the band itself does that make sense yeah. like there was so yeah. it was almost like a over exposed being overexposed or overdone yes. or yes. something it, you were less of a thing over here in the states but in the UK, yes. was that what happened? I mean, and, and I take full responsibility for that, you know. I mean, when we first started, I had this a strict kind of rule book. It was this futuristic space street gang from the, from the future that we would only be ever photographed at night. So that it, you know, because in all those sci-fi movies, it's always in this neon lit future and television screens flickering and stars and stuff like that. So I had this strict thing. We wouldn't do any photos um, unless it was shot at night, you know, which was a pain in the ass when they're flying you to Munich to do 200 interviews. And I'm going, well, I will only do the photos at night. I'm sorry. And I'm really held, you know, I'd learned um, to, to, to be firm about that. So it yeah. had this brilliant vision. It was this street gang straight out of Escape from New York. It looked dangerous and it looked wild, you know. Then what happens is you do the first record and then you come to do the second record and you've given, like, every brilliant idea I'd ever had <laughs> been put into the first record. You know, the, the video was fantastic. It was like a movie trailer. We had the voice, the deep voice, mm-hmm. you know, it, um, everything we did looked brilliant. It was this neon future. And then, of course, you come to do the second record, and I go, oh, you know, <laughs> you know, maybe it's too much of a hassle only doing photos at night, and you sort of <laughs> want to be successful, you know. So we end up making the song success. Mm-hmm. You know, when I look back at it, I go, hang on a minute. You know, we went from this futuristic, dangerous street gang to the back. You know, bunch of fucking football hooligans <laughs> prancing about in Marbella on boat, drunk. You know, but of course, by that time, we were a bunch of hooligans drunk oh. on a boat in Marbella. So I kind of let go of all the things. But then it still had that kind of marketing mm-hmm. blitz, but it wasn't somehow dangerous anymore. So the marketing and the ideas. And, you know, what happens is when you have such success and it's the hottest group in the world for a while you become obsessed and godlike that you think you can do walk on water and get away with anything so i became totally obsessed with the ideas overruling everything and of course because we didn't have a manager you know and you know darling magenta who was our publicist you know was more out of it than the group um and so I'd sort of lost control and lost the vision of what we should do. Because mm-hmm. if there'd have been a Malcolm McLaren or someone like that, 
who'd gone to me, Tony, what the fuck are you doing? You know, it was brilliant before. Don't fucking be like, you know, use Stock Aiken and Waterman and be like football hooligans doing a commercial track. Um, I would have gone, fuck, you're right, shit, hang on. You know, but of course, I went into the record company and it was like I could say I want to shoot everything upside down and they would have trusted me, you know. So it, I became totally out of control. And so I totally lost control of the whole project and lost sight of every genius idea it was, it had. Shoot. So what was my fault? <laughs> oh, well, it, I don't know. I don't know how long a band like that, based on those principles, was meant to last, was built to last. It feels almost as if it's, like I said, like it's commenting on a moment in time or a moment yes. in history, and you you nailed that moment. But the ability well, to name, to nail like future moments, no one's able to do that. Yeah. Very rarely, no. you know? I mean, that's that's the biggest problem, that something that, has so many ideas into those initial records you know everything like you know we only had girl roadies they all had to be six foot tall you know no they, they all the equipment had to look like yeah. as if it was an army arriving you know all the lettering had to be in japanese you know <laughs> the, the remixes had to have more samples and more stuff and you know it was so many ideas rammed into this record so of course once you come out of the music papers and into the tabloid world, you know, and they eat up all your ideas, and then suddenly everyone goes, uh, we've had enough of you now. You know, what's the next thing? And you go, yeah. but, you go, yeah. well, let us know when you've got more ideas. So you literally, you burn so brightly that then it crashes and burns, like the Pistols did or yes. like so many groups do. Exactly. You know, so much as in your heart you want to continue with it, you know, you just can't. And it was a perfect moment in time when it was young and sexy yeah. and wild and dangerous with all these brilliant ideas, you know, which is why you can't go back and reform the band and go and play because Agreed. you can't I have a 60-year-old version. I get it, what yeah. Futuristic space yeah. game. So, okay, so a couple questions about, before we, we're coming up on an hour. Thank you, Tony. This is so, you're such a great storyteller. I love this. Well, we I can just sit at your feet. I know, and I love it. That's what I'm grateful for. <laughs> I could just sit here. I've paid attention to every second of your career. So to hear these stories is so wonderful. What I'm curious about well, there is- There are so many stories. Oh, oh, I believe it. You should do your own podcast. One day. Every week. Well, one day it will be a great book or a great podcast you know, I hope so that, to tell all the stories not the history it goes right back that somehow I know that somehow the universe had this path for me you know even when I was 14 it turned out the man who lived at the bottom of our garden in the big house where we lived in a little ha house and I, I they asked me if I'd babysit for them turns out was he was Neil Aspinall who ran Apple Records what? of the Beatles and so I rehearsed and learned bass guitar playing in Neil's um you know house and his wow. basement which was big house at the bottom of yes. my garden and so oh I met George Harrison and Neil took me in John Lennon's Rolls Royce, the psychedelic oh. one, you know. So it had, and when Billy and I did our first management deal, we took it to Neil Aspinall at Apple Records to say, do you think we should sign this? Oh and he went, don't. 
<laughs> really? So, yeah, it somehow has these great yeah. stories associated with so many things. I know I'm going to r- run over your – you won't be able to play any records in, uh, in between. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so you two questions. Boring yes. No, none of this is boring. So one thing I am curious about, I think in the States, your prob- – I mean, Sputnik's highest profile moment was being included in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And yes, I wonder yes. if that – I don't know. Do you have any stories about that? Did you, were you told ahead of time that you were going to be in it? Did you find out later? What, anything interesting about that? What happened was we were, we were doing two shows in America and, and the show that we had by then had this huge video wall of screens, you know, and all these guys and, you know, fuck knows how we paid for it, but we flew out all these technicians to do the video wars and we had a live satellite dish on top of the feeding in live television, all the girl roadies, you know, who couldn't lift the equipment because they had too long a nails, you know, all flew out. We had a limo account in Los Angeles. It was like excess to everything. Um, and while we were in Los Angeles um, about to play those first shows, um, we I got a call and someone said, oh, it's John Hughes and he'd like to meet you. And um, and I spoke to him and he said, look, I'm making this movie about this kid who skipped school for a day and it's just his antics in a day. And I thought, sounds a really weird idea. And he said, but look, he said, I love Love Missile. He said, and I've got to have this track in the film. And he said, and in the opening sequence, the hero of the film wakes up and he gets up and he's playing, he's, you know, playing along with the track. And he said, come to the studio. So they sent a limo for me and I went to the studio and I went in a in a preview studio and I sat next to John Hughes and he showed me that opening sequence and he went, I have to have this track, otherwise the sequence is not going to work. Yeah. And I went, well, yeah, sounds great. You know, I'll tell the people to sort it out. So we did. Wow. And that's why we're very He's one of my heroes. Those 80s movies yes, that he yes. made are seminal to my upbringing. He's a hero. Right. The stupid thing was EMI at the time wouldn't let them release the track on a soundtrack album. And you saw Pretty and Pink broke all those groups like the Psychedelic Furs yeah. in the state. Yeah. And they should have put Love Missile on the soundtrack album. Yeah, you, you should know. have. But so that was kind of a, a fuck yeah. up from the record yeah, it was. point of view. Um, one other yeah. thing I was curious about, I didn't I didn't know who they were until getting ready to talk to you. Sex Gang Children. You produced oh, yeah, one of their albums. I'd never heard of them. I'm not afraid. 
Now yeah. was at was production at one point considered to be maybe more of a focus for you? Did you think you might produce other albums? Well, no. I mean, I knew Sex Gang Children, and I, I went to quite a few of their gigs, and they were mm. kind of an early kind of gothic yeah. uh, group. They came up at the same time as Southern Death Cult. We turned into the cult. Um, and I became friends with the singer and they they lived around where we lived and they asked me to produce the record and I seemed like, a, you know, it might be a fun thing to do and I could live out the fantasies of what producers did, you know, because I've read all the rock and roll books. I knew all the rock and roll history, you know, so I'd, you know, be producing them and would make them play in the dark or I'd run in with an electric drill and, you know, start drilling through the amplifiers while they were playing or have flashing lights or candles, you know, all these kind of fantasy. It was like a yeah. movie. Yeah. You know? And the record yeah. came out really good. And, uh, yeah. you know, I really liked them. So I did do that, but I don't really like producing stuff, you know. Okay. I mean, it's like I, I was. they asked, you know, I, I got flown to America to m- meet the head of Warner's and um, and they wanted me to work as sort of head of marketing for one of the big record companies, but I really, I couldn't, I couldn't somehow cross the line to work for the man somehow, mm. even though I would have had loads of great ideas. Yeah, it's not as good fun as being in the band. I believe you it. Know? So Sputnik, Sputnik splits up, and then do Sister Mercy. So another whole load of stories, yeah. and then of course, we'd, I did. Carbon silicon with Mick from 2002 till about five years, five six, you know, 2012. Yeah. So um, wow, we uh, that a was career. a really great time. Again, with lots of I think groundbreaking ideas, and we made some terrific music. Terrific Agreed. music. Well, we'll talk about that in part two. Oh, I would love <laughs> that. Are you kidding? You're just these don't stop. And you were England in the late 70s through the 80s. All those bands that came up through that those ranks that you rub shoulders with your own work of course mm-hmm. billy that is the that is the form that is the foundation of my interest in music is all that stuff i have one odd question for you who yes. is kathy mcgowan is that a british person <laughs> yeah she there was a television show called ready steady go uh-huh. and it was a 60s show that the stones and the beatles and all the hit people right i remember the show it played live on a Friday night at six o'clock and everyone rushed home to get to watch Ready Steady Go. She was the presenter of the program. Ah, okay. I've heard of the, sh- the I've always heard the of the show. I know song. it's historic, but I didn't know what yeah. her, that was who that was. I've always been one it, it was curious. The first song um Billy and I ever wrote together. And uh we just met through you know different people and um I've got it in my diary. I'd said oh went went over to see Billy and we wrote a song called Ready, Steady, Go. And I, I, it says in my diary, sounds quite good, question mark. Wow. You know, maybe we, maybe there's something there. Oh, you know? my God. Is there ever? We went on. I mean, the great, great thing is I've got diaries and all the stuff and all the tapes from all these years, you know. Yeah. But oh, the problem is I really enjoy life and I'm really enjoying you sitting do. in the sun. And it's a really hard job to write a book and to it have is. the – To have the um, – you know, the discipline to sit down. Because I keep saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to write a book and it's going to be great and I'm going to tell all these stories once and for all, you know, and then everyone can read everything, you know. So one day, you know. That's I'd why like to podcasts just... are, are the thing right now, yeah. you know. Just yeah. get a microphone, yeah. talk, record it, put it yeah. out there and see what happens. Yeah. But I find doing it 
best in a spontaneous situation like yeah. this where yeah. you ask me a question and it it triggers the memories of stories you know that's why i love it contrived to do it i love it so, Tony, you are a seminal figure in my life. Thank you for, and <laughs> what, nice I mean, this is that. such a fascinating yeah. conversation. I'm so grateful that you gave me your time. Thank you for everything. You're very welcome. Very welcome. Okay. Well, goodbye okay. to everybody and uh, listen to the music and maybe we'll see you in 2023. Ooh, that would be great. Having a I, bunch of fun. Heck yeah. All right. There you have it. Tony James. Can you believe all that stuff? A guy. I'm just imagining him and Steve Jones doing Generation Sex just because they want to because it's fun. Why not? We were both in a couple of big punk bands. Let's go out and have fun. You know? it's What a life he's been able to have. Now, we since we talked about Ready Steady Go there at the end, I didn't know who Kathy was, so I had to ask why not close it out with Ready Steady Go because it's a classic. Anyway, thank you, Tony, for talking with me. That meant a lot. Next week, we're talking... Well, the guest next week... We've been talking to a lot of Brits lately. And next week is the one of the last ones we're going to have for a little while. And But it, the conversation has changed my way of looking at the world. It is an incredibly inspiring conversation with an incredibly inspiring artist. Um, someone who takes what they do very seriously and does it very well. And I'm excited to share this conversation with all of you next week because I hope it changes your life for the better, too. Huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man. Um, guys, you can like our page on Facebook. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email, thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter, at thehustlepod. We should have a deep dive. I think this is our first deep dive of the year. Uh, haven't done one of these in a while. We should have a deep dive coming out this weekend. And then I think that's it for bonus material for at least a couple of weeks. So anyway, we love you all. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs>